I want to say thanks to Father Nelson for having me here. Um, I hope I can speak up loud enough to hear to be heard over the um, air conditioner. At least we have an air conditioner, so that's good. The, the, the short talk I'm going to give tonight is actually um, a condensation of the talk that Father Nelson um, talked, uh, just mentioned a few minutes just, last, just now. And it's a, it's a talk I was asked to give on the, on the subject of a very small subject, happiness. What is happiness? And I, I was daunted by this task, but I decided to take it up anyway. And this was a talk that I presented on the subject of love, achievement, and happiness. So I'm, you can see I've got it all figured out for you um, here tonight. I don't have it all figured out, but I do actually have some thoughts to, to, to share with you. And so what I'll do, I'll, do I'll, I'll read from the paper. I will not read the entire paper. I don't want to keep you here um, a really long time. But I would, lo I would love for you to talk to me afterwards about anything that you, um, that the, I hope the talk provoked in you some thoughts of your own. I think this is a particularly relevant thing to talk about at the beginning of an academic year uh, because it's a, it's a talk about how to deal with the desire to achieve. And I assume most of you, I, I know many of you, but I assume most of you are graduate students or undergraduates or the spouses uh, of graduate students. Um, so this will be relevant, I hope, to you. There are times when the dimensions of happiness are absolutely obvious and easy to understand. Often these times themselves are quite unhappy. We've all had them. When you stand outside in the cold in the middle of the night with a child who has croup and cannot breathe, when you see your spouse in great physical or emotional pain, at times like these our worries about ordinary daily concerns completely recede. And we wonder how we could possibly have occupied ourselves with so many trivial things like our careers, our budgets, our troublesome neighbors, when we now see clearly that happiness consists in loving others and in seeing them happy and well. Crisis has a way of sharpening our vision, making us perceive in stark relief what is important among all the things from the trivial and the serious that are ordinarily jumbled together in our lives. And yet, haven't we all had the experience of coming out of the particular crisis and once again taking up the things that just the night before we had dismissed as utterly unimportant? When the child can breathe again and the husband has recovered, we go back to making the grocery list and thinking about the next project at work. The self returns with all its former insistence and all its desires, and we lose that wonderful focus and clarity we had, if only for a short time. What is happening here? I think examples like this show that we possess two, at least two, but definitely two, contrasting orientations toward the world. The first may be understood, at least for Christians, as the love of God and love of neighbor, love or care, caritas for others. Of course, non-Christians experience this too, but it constitutes us as parents, daughters, sons, teachers, pastors, counselors, husbands and wives, and friends. And in relationships like this, we're concerned primarily with the good of others. We would gladly sacrifice for them. Our love is pure and noble, informed by reason, but not always reasonable, and virtuous actions naturally flow from it. The supreme example, perhaps a supreme example of this, is being a mother or a father, where your goal, if you are truly a mother or a father, is not your own well-being, but the well-being of your children. But the inclination can manifest in lots of other different ways, too, in care for a neighbor or an elderly relative in the many ways we may relinquish personal benefits in undergoing pain or suffering on someone else's behalf. So that's what I'm identifying as the first orientation. The second 
contrasting orientation is not necessarily selfish, but it requires an investment of oneself in satisfying desires, desires that range from the base to the noble. In this mode, we do the grocery shopping, we write the essay, we submit the proposal, we curate um, our images on Facebook, we negotiate with others to achieve an end, we advertise ourselves and our projects. This is the realm of productivity, of getting things done, of accomplishment. It is the realm of college. It is the realm most of us live in most of the time. Things done here range from the simple tasks of mopping our floors and organizing our closets, all the way up to restructuring corporations and producing blockbuster movies. We may or may not do these things selfishly or pridefully, but there's no doubt that we see ourselves as agents of acti activity and change, and some part of us desires to engage in these projects. Now in, this, in the paper that I wrote here, I, I do more with these orientations and I kind of spell them out, but, I, but the question I want to bring to you all tonight is are these orientations, this love on the one hand and achievement on the other hand, fundamentally at odds with each other or can we bring them together? There are times when they seem diametrically opposed as you all will recognize. But how is it we can recognize the priority of one which is love, while continuously and relentlessly being pulled back to the other, achievement. After all, the realm of love would seem to be unambiguously morally good, while the achievement realm seems morally questionable at best, pride-filled and soul-killing at worst. It can yield a host of pathologies, a constant attentiveness to work, to email, to one's job, to one's body, to comparative evaluations of ourselves and others, all at the expense of paying attention to those around us whom we actually do love. I mean, you've all read these stories about the, the driven parents, and they're never here in Texas, they're always in the Northeast, you know, who get their children into the best uh, kindergarten so they can get into the best prep schools and they get into the best college. This is a kind of a, achievement pathology. Um, that added, that's achievement at its worst, I would say. What I've been describing is this achievement at its worst, yet we all feel this pressure. And then I said, at my self-consciously Christian university, Baylor, and at all universities around the country, excellence is the watchword. We cultivate students who achieve remarkable things, but we also enjoy, if I may be frank, bragging about them later to parents, donors, and future student prospects. And I participate in this too. I'm not exempt. Now you might wonder, what does any of this have to do with happiness? Life lived in a kind of hamster wheel of compulsive achievement appears to be quite the opposite of happiness, and it appears to neglect the love side of the dichotomy I set up. So what should we do? This is the real question I want to get at. I had friends in college who said, uh, the answer is to renounce it all. Just go out and live. Um, Blake is, was in my class, and I may have told you this story about the friends I had in college who just decided they were going to go live on the farm, going to grow their own food, um, just live the simple life. This lasted about a year, and they got tired, and they came back, and they went to law school. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's one, one way of sort of opting out of the, the achievement compulsion. But I think most of us know that trying to renounce this altogether is not realistic, as my friends found out. And this is because, as I believe, with those of you who have read, uh, read Aristotle will know, Real and long-lasting happiness consists in pur purposeful activity, not rest or pleasure. Human beings carry within themselves a great desire to do something meaningful. 
and this requires discipline, hard work, investment, and patience. Okay, so now I'm going to turn, cutting out quite a bit, to, to talk about, well, how can we think about achievement in a, in a more positive way than the sort of sec, the, the popular secular understanding of what achievement's all about? I don't know if any of you read the uh, David Brooks' new book, um, what's it called? Is Yes, Road to Character, thank you. And it's, it's a book about this very tension, and he gives you images of people who've navigated this well. It's kind of a, a, something I've been thinking about as well, too. The conflict is particularly prominent when you read literature about uh, women in professional work, but I would say it's just as much a man's problem as a woman's. It affects anyone who feels driven toward achievement and yet, yet disappointed by the promised satisfaction of all this investment of time and energy. It bothers all of us who recognize that another mode of experience seems to be more meaningful than many of the things we spend our waking hours engaged in. So what I want to do is examine why, what we are really aiming at in all of our purposeful, determined activities. Let's look at the effort and the striving in itself. Why do we do it? So far, I've been focusing on the negative aspects of the achievement orientation, on its pathologies, uh, how it can move us toward being self-absorbed and prideful. And these are real. These are very real uh, dangers. But if the, quest the, the question remains, if we can't just wish away this tension, how can we understand it in a way that both recognizes its profound dangers and tries to understand why it is we have such strong desires to accomplish things? I want to suggest four ways of approaching the problem. The first one is to try, in a kind of academic way, to understand the origins of the achievement mentality. Think back to your grandparents. Uh, when they were growing up, I bet they did not feel, I mean, my grandparents, my grandparents are, are quite a bit, well, they're dead now, but they were born in the early 1900s, and none of them had this compulsive desire to achieve in the way that almost all of my peers do, and I bet most of you in this room do. So this is something that has, a, that has come about over the past century. Um, not completely, but there are roots of it, of course, prior to this, but um, I think it's, it's certainly magnified in our age of social media. Let me read to you a quote that I found particularly um, perceptive by a, uh, a philosopher named Emil Brunner. He says this, once the belief is established that productivity is the meaning of life, none can prevent this point of view being transferred to the lower regions of human production, especially since it is only a minority of people who are capable of taking part actively or receptively in art and science, at least in the sense of a passionate interest or a total self-abandonment. The slogan of productivity being the true meaning of life directs the large majority of men to another field, a field of production which is in closer connection with everyday exigencies and interests, namely the field of mechanical or technical invention in the service of economics. It corresponds to a materialist, quantitative conception of life by which the technical inventor, because it's the adored symbol of creativity, and new machinery is the measure of progress. Edison is thought of as the greatest of creative minds. Of course, in the present day, we could think of the tech geniuses, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and so on. So one, thing I, one way I think of coming to terms with achievement is to, to look at its origins, and Brunner does this, and, and there's a lot to be done there. But I'm mo even more interested than that to do a kind of self-examination, to, to look into our own souls to find the source of this desire. 
when we do that, we'll find that it, there are a lot of reasons for it. Sometimes it's for uh, money, power, or honor. I cannot count the number of students and I, who I've met in the past and still continue to meet who say um, they want to go to law school. And I ask them why, and they say, well, it's because I can make a good living there. Which is nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but that, that, that becomes the reason for this achievement. Sometimes the desire to accomplish things comes out of a kind of personal insecurity. We don't have any value until we show what we can do. Sometimes we uh, are looking for um, sort of acceptance from others, as on a sports team or a band. So we, get, we, we work hard to get into the orchestra that does well, and we accomplish things there. But sometimes, I think, and I know, I suspect most of you have had this experience, the desire to achieve emerges not from a desire for money or power or out of insecurity, but rather as a, as a result of a vision of a kind of good or perfection that works upon us and to which we respond in turn. In perceiving excellence in other people and in the works they create, we glimpse the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. We may even discover that we too desire to make, do, and create in our turn and in whatever way we can, and to the extent we can, to do them perfectly. Let me give you another quote from a, uh, a mostly forgotten writer writing in the 1920s, L.P. Jack. He writes a book called Constructive Citizenship, and he says this. Our real interest in truth, beauty, and goodness does not begin until we are on the way to creating one or the other of them. Show me a man who is doing a piece of honest work or one who is making something beautiful that might have been made ugly, and I know beyond a doubt that the eternal values have laid hold of that man. He may be governing a state or steering a ship or writing a book or composing a sonnet or laying bricks, but in any case, the root of the matter is in him. The eternal beauty, uh, excuse me, the eternal values are not beautiful phantoms. They are the active principles of human labor. Not to rest content until our trusteeship of matter has got itself outwardly expressed in things true, good, and beautiful for the eye to see, the ear to hear, the touch to handle, the whole man to rejoice in and make use of. Not to rest content until by our creative activity we have added one more to the world's inheritance of such things. That is the culture that goes through with its task, the wisdom that completes itself, itself in skill. Hopefully that resonated with some of you. I think he's right, and it describes experiences we've all had. Um, I give the example here of um, hearing Glenn Gould play Bach. I don't know if any of you are piano lovers of piano music, Glenn Gould's wonderful player of Bach. Other people hear it, sense this in, in poetry, some in prose. Um, Alan Jacobs, who has been here to speak to this group, is a colleague of mine, and he, um, I was teaching Middlemarch with him last year, and he pointed out the very final lines of Middlemarch, which are so wonderful, uh, which I'll read to you at the, at the end of this, but he said, you know, that is perfection. That is what I aim at, and I, and I think there's really something there. So the second way of thinking about achievement is not so much I've got to make money or I've got to impress other people, but it's, there's, a, there's a vision of something good, true, and beautiful that you're striving toward. Point three, so there would be four. So far I've been talking about the origins of the desire to achieve. These can be base or noble, concerned with money or honor, or alternatively with truth, goodness, and virtue in whatever ways these appear to us. 
But there's something else I think that's very important to be said about achievement, and it, it, it has to do with the way we think about achievement. This is that whatever the motivation, even if it's base, but certainly if it's noble, there's liberation in recognizing and fully seeing that our accomplishments are never entirely self-generated. This, I believe, is underappreciated in our present culture, where the greatest admiration is usually reserved for those who are always independent and self-made. But if we can manage instead to think of ourselves as more as a curator or a caretaker, whose job it is to develop and nurture what's been given as a gift, this is a very Christian view, obviously, then while the pressure is not off, it's lessened, or better, its character has been changed. It is as if we live in a house that is far grander we could, than we could have ever built on our own, and yet out of love and appreciation for the unearned gift, we want to preserve it and make it better and even more beautiful. So the third point is to be able to understand that the gifts are not solely self-generated. Okay, and finally the fourth point. So far I've been arguing that there's a common secular way of understanding achievement, which is intensely self-focused, and which places a person's whole value on what he or she can do or has done in the past or will do in the future. This is the world of the meritocracy, of endless credentialing, and it does promise a certain kind of happiness, but it's a limited kind, and it's never stable or permanent. It is what a student feels for a few days after finals. Ah, I finished. But how soon the mind turns to the next semester and all the triumph of the past accomplishment is completely gone. So I would propose instead that we come to think of achievement not so much as the whole measure of a person, as the world encourages us to do, but as the experience of being drawn to something one loves or finds beautiful or valuable. But this is the fourth point. But sometimes in certain kinds of work, there's actually congruence, complete congruence with what I've called the other orientation toward love. So here the thing that draws us to the activity is not so much a transcendental truth, goodness, or beauty, although those aren't gone, uh, but a person or a group of persons, and those of you who are teaching know this, or being a priest. The true teacher finds her reward not in honor or salary, but in the students whose lives she improves. The missionary wishes for an achievement that actually consists in love. The doctor or therapist wants the betterment and flourishing of his patients. There's even a way in which any kind of vocation may, in the end, draw on and express love. To the extent that one becomes skilled or advanced in anything at all, he or she gains the power to influence and to encourage those who follow in the activity. Thus, we all look to the approval of those we admire. The opinions of our teachers and mentors are of extraordinary value to us, and we care deeply about what they think. In the same way as we eventually become the teachers and mentors, we should see that others will also care deeply about what we think of them. And then it is in our power to do enormously beneficial works of love, to encourage, to criticize, to help, to mentor, to reassure, to warn, and simply to watch. In the world of academics, the greatest kindness one person can do another is read their work and then to talk with them about it. To the extent that we academics feel vocationally called to write and think, we want others to see what we're thinking and writing, and frankly, to find it good. And this is ultimately to use your gifts not just for yourself, but for others, to recognize others where you can, encourage them in their achievements, and this is a kind of love for them. 
It is seeing others as they wish to be seen. Not asking them to pay attention to you, but you pay attention to them. So let me conclude by just saying two more brief things, and then I'll read you the, um, the Middlemarch quote, which is absolutely lovely. I think there are ultimately two ways of thinking about the conflict between love and achievement. I've been talking about how they go together, but actually the conflict is there, and it's there um, very strongly. For instance, when uh, I can give you an example from this morning, trying to come into Baylor to meet a student, and my two-year-old is screaming and doesn't want me to leave. What do I do? Do I stay with my two-year-old? Do I come in and meet my student? I mean, this is a constant thing. We all have commitments that are love and I wouldn't say my work here is achievement, but it's a, a kind of professionalism. So that conflict is always there. So I think there are ultimately two ways of thinking about the conflict between love and achievement. One is simply to recognize and mark the discontinuity between these two orientations. It has been a relief for me personally to realize there is no balancing them out or wishing them away or absolutely rolling them together in a life that is completely coherent. Um, there's a book uh, that I have in my office that I had to order for a project I was working on, and it's called um, Getting to 50-50. And its premise is that if you can completely equalize the roles in a marriage, then you will be happy. And this book will tell you how to get there. Uh, and, and I hate the book. It tells us that it's the roadmap to a great career, a good marriage, and a happy family. And I find these kinds of platitudes continually reinforced in the media as if you could somehow wish away the problems of, of human life, the problems of love and achievement, and I, I don't think you can. So marking the discontinuity between these two things is, is very helpful. But the second way of thinking about love and achievement is involves a difficult task, and that is to check our own pride, remember our own littleness, and yet at the same time be energetic and optimistic about the future. If many of us find it hard to be hopeful at the present moment about, say, the political future of the United States, we should remember our Augustine. It should be no surprise to us that earthly politics are imbued with sin or that bad people can attain high office and great honors. Yet we shouldn't wring our hands, but instead we should redouble our efforts not to win the culture wars, although they're worth fighting, but to cultivate our own gardens, to preserve the traditions we have inherited, and to cultivate now countercultural ways of being conservative in what is ever more a revolutionary age. And I don't necessarily mean political conservatism, um, but I mean to conserve what is good. So let me quote George Eliot as a way of ending. Uh, this is the last, uh, these are the last few lines of that very thick book, Middlemarch, which I know some of you have read. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful, it, evocation of what we might achieve uh, as human beings. It's about the main character, it's a description of the main character, Dorothea. And here's what Eliot says. Dorothea's finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name upon the earth, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Stop there. Thank you.